Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Truth and Movies, and this week we're going on some big trips. First up's pink-hued, neo-barbarian stoner epic Mandy with a howling mad Nick Cage at his most cagiest. It's crazy evil! Then Damien Chazelle follows up La La Land by sending Ryan Gosling to the moon. We'll find out, is it actually made of cheese? It's a responsibility, but it's exciting to be the first. Film Club this week, Space is Still the Place, with Philip Kaufman's 1983 aviation saga, The Right Stuff. It's very dangerous. Count me in. All on this week's Truth and Movies. So, hey, everyone. We're here to talk mo movies. Um, sorry. We're here to talk moon movies? Moon, moon, moon movies. movies. Moon movies. Moon, moon movies. Um, trip movies, to be more <laughs> precise. And in the hot seats this week is Hannah Woodhead. Hello. And... First timer, first man indeed, Anton Battelle. Good day. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't just affecting that, he's actually from Australia, just to forewarn you. I've only been pretending to be British all exactly, these years. <laughs> exactly. So, um, as ever, if you want to get in touch with us about anything, it's truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. We've also got a brand spangly new Twitter account at Truth and Movies, where we're going to be focusing all our uh, film club and Truth and Movies activities from now on. So please uh, follow us there. And at Facebook uh, slash Little White Lies magazine, you can uh, go and put some comments on there as well. Um, so yeah, first up this week, we're going to be talking about Mandy. You're a special one, Mandy. I too... I'm a special one. Let us be so very special together. So what you gonna do with that thing? I'm going hunting. So what you hunting? It's crazy evil! You think you're so... In love, I'll show you love. So that was from Mandy, a new film by Panos Kosmatos. It stars Nicolas Cage, Andrea Riseborough and uh, Linus Roach. It's the director's follow-up to a movie called Under the Black Rainbow which I've never seen, but is reportedly as ominous as it sounds. Beyond the Black Rainbow. Beyond the Black Rainbow. <laughs> oh, not just under, beyond. My apologies. So Mandy, uh, set in 1983 in the Pacific Northwest, a couple live in bliss in their woodland cabin. He works as some kind of lumberjack, I think. Yeah. Uh, she works as a shop assistant. They spend their evenings cooing over each other, watching nice TV shows and uh, sort of spooning, I would say. Yeah. Is, is, would you say spooning's the right the right term for it? I, mean, I guess. I yeah, mean, it's it's a sort of loving huddle. Yeah. And then, gosh darn it, a <laughs> minibus full of religious maniacs. <laughs> Those hippies. Religious oh. hippie maniacs who love drugging people and uh, doing horrible things to them. Uh, not dissimilar to the Manson family. I didn't know the Manson family, but from what I assume they were like is what I'm saying that these people were like. They roll by and um, I guess all hell breaks loose. So, Hannah, let's call it a special film. It, it, I think <laughs> a special it, one. It's a special one. It's a unique <laughs> film in many ways, I think. And um, I think the director himself has sort of, he's described it as a pretty basic revenge movie. Yeah. I mean, he, he's not sort of 
over over flowery when he describes it. So it's a revenge movie, but it's over two hours. Why, why is that? <laughs> I, I mean, I can't speak for Panos. I've seen it twice now, and I think it's really nice that it's two hours, not just because I enjoyed it, but because you spend the first hour of this movie, or the first 40 minutes, certainly, kind of with Red and Mandy. I, I so Red's ca- Nicolas Cage's character. Sorry, yeah, should have explained this. Red is Nicolas Cage, and Mandy is... Um, and Joe Iceberg, and you become quite invested in their little um, weird relationship. And, uh, you know, she tells him a story about her childhood, which is quite traumatic. And we see her, like, drawing, and apparently she's very good at that. And we get some uh, footage of her, like, reading this uh, this great-sounding um, pulp paperback. And I think with revenge movies, you usually kind of only get a sort of um, cursory glance, and it's like... Okay, uh, I've got to now invest in this story and these characters with only kind of knowing the bare minimum. Whereas Mandy, I think you do kind of, you get a real sense that they love each other so much. And it, to me, seemed quite reasonable that after all this traumatic stuff happens, Nicholas Cage is just like, okay, well, I'm just going to kill everyone. Like, mm. fair dues, man. I mean. Uh, but is that not more of an exploitation thing to actually, like, make you fall in love with some people and then do horrible things to them? Obviously, what they do to Mandy is like pretty horrible, but um, in terms of exploitation movies, like it could have been way, way worse. You don't actually see that much, really, which I was quite pleased about. It didn't at all feel um, sexualized violence. It was, despite the fact that the cult leader is kind of like <laughs> this. There's obviously like he's like I want her, I need her, and it's very like okay, this, this he's got to. Um, like concubines, one who she's very creepy and the other is kind of just like this young woman who seems to not have a clue what's going on. And um, yeah, I was quite impressed at how non-exploitative it felt to me. I don't know, maybe I was just reading what I wanted into it. Anton, I, I, so I've got to ask you this. As something of a, of a horror expert, am I able to call you yeah, that? Absolutely. <laughs> how does Mandy fit into the horror genre? Does it at all? Well, it fits into the horror genre in that it, seems to evoke demonology and demons. There are characters in the film that are presented as demons and have a whole uh, kind of mythology behind them. They're... Can you tell us a bit about those? Because they're quite interesting, those they're, well, they're sort of PVC-clad bikers. Yeah, they've, they've clearly been styled to resemble the Cenobites from Hellraiser. They're bikers who wear, yeah, sort of what you'd call nail naily <laughs> fetish gear, I guess. Um, and they're summoned by a kind of an implement that's a cult device called the Horn of Abraxas, which is in fact a kind of flute um and they always are and one of the things that the film does is it establishes the cult members and their and their kind of peripheral hangers-on as um at first as having sort of supernatural powers um but in fact they're they're false gods the leader of the cult played by linus roach is just a charlatan and a manipulative unpleasant person uh who knows how to abuse and exploit the weak and the vulnerable and the bikers, who at first we really are... I mean, I don't know whether this is a spoiler, but, I mean, we are led to believe that they are something like demons. But they're just some hell's angels that have taken too much bad acid and are being manipulated. <laughs> they're, again, very unpleasant people, but they are at heart people. And they are slowly replaced by the model of Nick Cage's character, Red, and Mandy. I mean, Mandy, Mandy actually disappears from the film about halfway through... Spoiler, um, maybe. <laughs> um, I mean, she does reappear. I mean, yes. we see her several times after that, but she becomes less prominent. But she's always she's always the focus of the film. And the film is, I mean, in a way, it's more about his love for her than it is about the revenge, although the revenge is an expression of his love for her. And they are both damaged people before any of the, the nasty stuff starts. I mean, he's clearly an alcoholic. He's a recovering alcoholic. Um, she's literally scarred and does tell these stories about her past that sound a little disturbing. And together, they've, you know, in one another, they've found this kind of idyll that they've built around themselves. And it really is a paradise that they have in their cabin in this sort of beautiful woodland. And um, because we get to know them at such length before things go wrong, it really does feel like an idol has been corrupted, and then he becomes Jesus. And um, his side is pierced, he wears a crown of well, barbed wire rather than thorns, he has a nail through his hand. He does become a kind of Jesus figure, and I don't want to say he's a true god, but he's a truer god than the false gods that, that are opposed to him. Well, one of the elements, so one of the things you talked about before was this idea of the deception of these false prophets. And I guess one of the tools 
they're using the film is drugs. I don't really want to sort of go into the details because I think <laughs> when you see the film, it's quite sort of delightful how how they're administered and 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 whatnot. Um, <laughs> quite revolting, actually. But um, I've seen this described as a kind of stoner movie. Obviously, we would never advocate people take drugs, but does it feel like it's a sort of a film that you to enjoy? You have to be on in some like otherworldly place in your own mind. Lord, no. Or is it a film no. that actually operate is actually trying to give you that experience, a legal high, if you will? <laughs> I mean, Paris's first movie is very similar in that it's incredibly slowly paced, and it is this kind of, especially more towards the beginning. I think everything in that kind of only unravels in like the last fifteen minutes. But it's it's this thing he's sort of I, I don't know if he coined the phrase, but someone coined the phrase called trans cinema, where you're kind of just like so immersed in the world you don't really know what time is anymore and um both times I watched it I was completely uh, sober like four in the afternoon and uh, I still got an awful lot out of it I think it's maybe one of those movies that people are going to be quite keen to um take home and uh you know light up before they watch and maybe they will reach some higher plane of understanding but I, I've seen a lot of fan theories about this where they're like oh the whole film is actually just a drug trip and I'm like mm, is it is it though? I think that's, you know? that's the ultimate cop out isn't it <laughs> I think um, the other thing is if it's just a trip film it's designed like his first film to give you a really bad trip it's not yeah. it's not going to be a fun time if you're <laughs> no on one drugs. comes away from that going um, like <laughs> Maybe, maybe I should try some drugs now. <laughs> well, let, let's also... I mean, one of the... Obviously, the key things here is we've got Nicolas Cage in a lead role and um, the casting almost maybe seems too obvious. If I'm going to play <laughs> devil's advocate here, it's like the film almost seems to be like a kind of... Let's build a film around Nick Cage doing this kind of crescendo performance where he, you know, he's just on some sort of, like, ever-increasing wig out. Anton... Is this his best performance? Is Nick Cage going crazy good cinema? Okay, one of, one of the problems with Nick Cage is you sometimes <laughs> get the impression when you watch a lot of films, especially his more recent films, that every director just says to him, turn it up to 11, and he does, <laughs> and we know what to expect, and it often doesn't fit the film or does fit the film but is too high-paced for the film to cope with. And in this film, I think actually, although... It is getting talked about as Nick Cage going all out and doing his Cage rage and so on. But I think actually this film does something very different and treats him as an actor in a different way because it's the film that's crazy. And he's actually quite centred and remarkably stayed. There is one prolonged sequence in a bathroom where he does the Cage, although it's a sequence that is it's so ridiculous and absurd and yet so intense that you're actually, as a viewer, you're not quite sure how you're supposed to respond to it. And I found that a really interesting and difficult scene. But other than that, the crazy stuff is all happening around him. He's just <laughs> in the centre. He's like the eye of the storm. I mean, he is delivering the vengeance. But one of the ways in which he's been restrained is that he actually has very few lines in the film. He's not delivering his crazy-eyed lines. He's just caught in the middle of this incredible mess and is trying to struggle and find a way out of it. I don't think he will be recognised in this <laughs> film for this, but I do think it's one of his more restrained roles and he's not playing it at 11. There's a really good video, I think it was a GQ video, about uh, where he breaks down his most iconic roles. And I would highly recommend people find it because he talks about like Moonstruck and uh, Bad Lieutenant 2. It's just, it's just really like fun watching him talk about his quote-unquote process. But when um, he was originally sort of... Um, circling this movie, Panos asked him to play the character of Jeremiah Sand, who's the cult leader, and he was like, no, I don't want to play that one. I want to play Red. I think Red's more interesting. And it's great that he said that, because I think seeing him as a kind of crazy cult leader wouldn't be that interesting to me. I think, like Anton said, there's this bathroom sequence, and we were in the same screening, and people were kind of like laughing at that, and I was like, no, this is really sad. Do you not see what's happening? Like, he's giving a kind of very... Um, you know, a, a tortured performance. It's you know, this man is in deep pain, and um, I, I really like that he gets to kind of uh, be full on crazy Nick Cage, but with a purpose this time. It doesn't just feel like he's just walked onto the set and um, started yelling at people. It feels like, yeah, this makes total sense. This is a man just trying to kind of do the right thing, and yeah, that's pretty much the movie. Yeah, I would say after the ordeal he kind of goes through prior to that scene, you know, it's a rare occasion where it feels 
I would maybe wouldn't say restrained, but justified at least. <laughs> it is one of these weird scenes where what he's going through is it, it's a very intense emotional experience for the character, but he's sitting on a toilet throughout it, and that just somehow <laughs> it makes pants. it completely absurd. <laughs> um, and the bathroom is absurd as well. I mean, the, the, I think the production design in this is so great as well. Yeah. Like the um, that floral from, wallpaper. The, the, this, the bathroom's like yellow, like yeah. yellow floral wallpaper. Very, very like. I mean, the film is set in the 80s, but it feels like that bathroom is, like, solid 70s. Like, that's my grandparents' bathroom. And the rest of the set design as well, like, their house is so, like, beautiful. It has Their bedroom's got these, like, um, glass walls so they can look into the forest. And there's this scene where he goes to meet a drug chemist, and it looks like a airplane hanger I guess and I just think so much kind of thought and love has gone into every single detail in this film even if you're not into the kind of Nick Cage being Nick Cage element it makes me very happy that films like this are still made and that we can go to the cinema and watch them and I'm super excited to see what Panos does next after this I mean let me ask you one last thing before we move on to scores I mean this this was a sort of reaction I had to I mean I was sort of watching this film aghast you know when you're watching a movie and you're like, this is the film of a free man. This is a man doing exactly what he wants to do, the way he wants to do it. There is no decision that some kind of toadying producer <laughs> with a ponytail has come up to him and said, sorry, kid, we can't do that. It's not going to play in the boonies. So is that very idea of, of a film that is a kind of almost, it feels like an untainted vision, even if it might not be an untainted vision. Is that itself a kind of positive you know, it's funny because I often complain, I think I've complained on this show about um, directors who need an editor and need someone to tell them when they should just not do things. But yeah, I think it is nice to see a film where someone has clearly just run with it and done what they want to do. I know that um, with Beyond the Black Rainbow, he financed it by um, using the residuals from his uh, father's film Tombstone. And again, it feels like he's just kind of been like, OK, I've got an idea. I'm going to do it. And I think one of the frustrating things about this film for me is that uh, the release has been so sort of all over the place. And it's finally now going to be in cinemas for a while. It looked like it was just going to go straight on to um, on demand, which would have been a huge shame. I think it does benefit from being seen on a big screen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially <laughs> but, for the sound. But it's now become like a kind of cult hit. There's, I've been reading in America that it's, you know, although it's been playing on very few screens, all those screens are, are sold out. And, and, the, I mean, and it's, it's, here, it's running and running and running. Here, the Prince Charles in London have They've sold a thousand, thousand tickets, tickets, which is crazy for one movie over like a week or so that they're playing it. I think it's a real testament to, A, the power of like social media marketing and the fact that people have got out there and said, like, yeah, I love this movie, go and watch this movie. And also um, Panos himself and Aaron Stewart-Han, who wrote, like, wrote the film with him, have been very active about saying, if you are a cinema who wants to show this movie, let us know and we'll see what we can do, which I think is so... It's Again, it goes back to them having the kind of freedom to do this. A lot of directors, I think, don't have that kind of freedom and we, we need more more of that out there so let's get some scores in anton so what we do here just to explain for the newbie we do uh, anticipation in enjoyment in retrospect score out five with a little comment on each one as okay. we would do for our okay. print reviews well i don't really believe in the value of anticipation <laughs> i have if i'm being completely honest i had very high anticipation for this mm-hmm. film and probably would have given it a five because beyond the black rainbow i just adore and for enjoyment i think my jaw was on the floor throughout the film so um again i suspect i would give it five for in retrospect oh now that's probably a little harder the only problem i have with the film is that it's an experience and it's it's like an audiovisual experience that is completely overwhelming when you're sitting in the theatre. But actually, I'm not entirely sure that it gives you a lot to take home with you afterwards. It is a very simple revenge plot. I mean, there's lots of colourful details, but the plot itself is very straightforward. So I suspect I'd give it four. OK. Yeah. And that's really interesting to me, because I... Um it was like a four in anticipation and a four and a five for me in retrospect. I think although, like Anton says, it's quite a simple, like a linear, like here is a man who has a problem, he's going to solve the problem um, plot. I've been kind of thinking about it since I first saw it like three months ago and kind of still thinking in images from it. I think it's a very, uh, you know, you'll just be minding your own business and especially like the ending shot will just pop in your head. I'm like, man, that was a great movie. So yeah, like still a five in retrospect for me. Wow, so big scores for Panos Cosmatos's Mandy, which is out on Friday. Next up, 
Damien Chazelle's First Man. So we got Ryan Gosling back in collaboration with Damien Chazelle after the very successful neon-hued L.A. musical La La Land. This new one is a chronicle of how Neil Armstrong became the first man, first man, air quotes, on the moon. There's focus on the abortive attempts of sending a rocket through the atmosphere, details of the family life, and it's set against the backdrop of the space race and the Cold War. Here's a clip of Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, et al. at a press conference prior to the big launch. Brian. Neil, if it does turn out, you'll go down in history. What kind of thoughts do you have about that when the thought hits you? Uh, gosh, suppose that flight successful? We're planning on that flight being successful. Uh, I, I just meant how you feel about being a part of history. I think I can shed some light here. It's a responsibility, but it's exciting to be the first. Even my wife is excited. She keeps slipping. Jewelry into my PPK. <laughs> You're planning on taking some of her jewelry to the moon, Buzz? Sure. What, what fella wouldn't want to give his wife bragging rights? <laughs> Neil, will you take anything? Uh, if I had a choice, I'd take more fuel. As we all know, to fill in the story, Damon Chazelle was pipped at the post at the Oscars for La La Land. <laughs> Moonlight beat it at, at the final hurdle. And Anton, I'd like to hear from you. Maybe you're not a massive awards geek, but I'd love to know, does this feel like Damien Chazelle has thought, OK, I missed that shot. I've got to do something which absolutely secures the Oscar this time around. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure all prominent filmmakers have that somewhere in the back of their mind. I'm not sure whether he succeeded, although, frankly, I don't think he succeeded with his last <laughs> film either. But in the clip that we just heard, we hear Neil Armstrong, um, played by Ryan Gosling, being asked repeatedly what he thinks about the mission. And the, the last question that he's asked is, uh, what you feel about being a part of this? And he doesn't answer. And there's a pause, and then Buzz Aldrin interrupts him. And um, in a sense, that's essential to the film's core theme, because this is really a film about a man with very stunted emotions. It's a man who cannot express the way he feels. The film begins with a tragedy. His young daughter, Karen, dies of cancer, and he just never recovers from this, but is so emotionally constipated that he's incapable of talking about his problems and his feelings with friends, with the other astronauts that are on the, the first the Gemini project and then the Apollo project with him, and even with his, with his own wife, played by Claire Foy. And it's a strange focus. In a sense, it's what makes the film interesting, in that you have a story that you might expect will be grand vistas and giant sort of spectacles of outer space. But in fact, First Man is a very telling title because it really is about the man first and not about the mission. But the problem is that he's not a very engaging man because he's so emotionally constipated that there's very little for us to relate to or to like about him. And um, I found that I very quickly lost interest in him as a character. Um, it's just he was always there, so you have to focus on him. But he's so lost in his own emotionlessness that, and he's so inert that I just couldn't relate to him at all. I think I understand correctly that I'm, I certainly didn't see this in IMAX. Parts of it were filmed in IMAX, and I, I believe you, you also no, didn't, I didn't see it in see IMAX. IMAX. It's possible that we're both going to do the film an injustice, because <laughs> I, I have read accounts from people who have seen it in IMAX who say that it really does deliver a spectacle at the end on the moon that is like nothing that we've ever seen before and that requires the full IMAX screen to, to be appreciated. But I must say, before that, um, the film is quite determinedly and deliberately an anti-spectacle. Whenever there are trips beyond the Earth's atmosphere, the focus is always on the character's face. If we see outside, it's either a close-up hugging the spacecraft or else it's a vision of outer space framed by a small window within the space vessel. And so um, it feels really much more like a trip into kind of inner space. It's a kind of an intimate look at what space travel is like. And it's only really towards the end that we start getting anything like the vistas that are the the cliche of space travel films. You know, we get a waltz when there's a spacecraft mm -hmm. in the air, like 2001 <laughs> A Space Odyssey. But the film has come under a lot of uh, criticism from the American right for <laughs> not focusing on the planting of the US flag on the moon's surface. Now, no matter what you think about that politically and whether you think that is a political statement or not, I mean, personally, I think you do see the flag very clearly on the moon's surface. It's just a non-issue. But what is quite clear is that Chazelle is 
deliberately avoiding showing all the scenes that we've already seen of the moon. And he's trying to show a different perspective. But that perspective is it's always focused on Neil Armstrong. In a way, the film, it's a terrible reduction of the film. But what the film is about is a man who is distanced from everybody. And the way in which he realises his aloofness is he finds the most distant place he can be from everybody, which is on the moon, <laughs> and finds the perfect place to bury his emotions there, somewhere that's dark and dank and that no one is ever going to see. So here's a question. Um, everyone knows how the moon landings ended up, you know, unless you believe in conspiracy theories <laughs> about Stanley Kubrick, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you think that this kind of idea of the fait accompli, the fact that we already know what happens damages the sort of dramatic impact of this film? No, because I didn't watch Dunkirk and think, oh, well, I know how this is going to turn out. You know, I think um, uh, films like this where you know exactly how it's going to play out, the the onus is on the director and the, the screenwriter to tell you what you don't know, which is about, in this case, it's about Neil Armstrong. But as Anton has said, Neil Armstrong is, is a, at least in this film, he seems like a pretty boring character. He, you know, he's an ordinary man who happens to do a, an extraordinary thing, especially when you have him kind of uh, squaring off against Buzz Aldrin, who's played by Corey Stoll, who is like, he's great in this film, um, who's the kind of wisecracking, like, flyboy, I guess. I'm pretty um, sure Buzz Aldrin is not that happy with this film. <laughs> his, his, the depiction of him as a kind of goofball. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. Everyone kind of like, shut up, Buzz, every two seconds. Um, he's a bit of a shady character. But you watch the movie and you're, you're watching Buzz and you're like, I want to film about Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin seems way more like interesting. And there's this great scene where Ryan Gosling is talking to his children after much chiding from his wife, Janet. She's like, Neil, you've got to tell the children you're going to the moon. And he's like, okay, tell the children you're going to the moon. And uh, he sits them down and he has like a press conference with his children. They ask him questions and he's like sat there with his arm, with his hands kind of clasped like, yes, no, like, it will be a difficult... And it's just, it's funny, but I don't know if it was kind of meant to be funny. I think um, it just kind of is testament to how um, stiff and robotic Neil Armstrong comes across in this movie. I mean, it's a good thing to mention because the point I want to come to next is the casting of uh, Ryan Gosling. (laughs) And um, my take on this was that Ryan Gosling is someone, I mean, I don't know if you guys have noticed this in him, but he's an expert jowl actor. Do you you know what I mean by that? There are many scenes in films where it's the camera on his face and he will be sort of grinding his teeth so the kind of muscles just behind his eyes will kind of pulsate and wriggle in his face that's his kind of you know his sort of static look like i'm about to explode i've got this kind of writhing anger or this sadness inside of me that is just kind of waiting to come out there's a lot of jowl acting in this film i mean this is this is maybe kill me but like a boring actor as a boring character is a bit of a is it two negatives making a positive I don't know. I'm an admirer of Ryan Gosling's Sorry, performance. That was, that was a loaded um, question. Um, <laughs> so, so it's hard for me to engage directly with that question. But I do think that you know, it's it's true that Ryan Gosling is also very pretty to look at. He's very handsome, and that that is part of his appeal to a lot of viewers. And that probably helps because I think it would have been difficult for any actor to find something interesting about this character the way he's been written. I mean, in a sense. He can't ever show anything or display anything because the whole point of the character is that he keeps everything hidden. He keeps everything cocooned within his little sort of man suit. So I I think probably a good thing that Ryan Gosling is there because it will certainly inspire some people to go and see the film who might otherwise not have. But I wonder whether they're going to be getting what they consider the full Gosling. Let's loop back to something you mentioned, actually, about the the, the planting of the American flag. Because, I mean, this, this is a kind of... When I saw the film, I certainly kind of... I guess I understood why people were talking about it because I think the film, if it was a militantly apolitical film that wasn't looking at the ideas of America, ideas of like America versus um, Russia, like domestic policy, how money was being funneled to the space program and potentially being taken away from like healthcare and housing projects and things like that. Is it a political film? I mean, is is Damien Chazelle trying to have his political cake and eat it in a way? I don't think he is. I think it's, having now seen the film, I think the flag thing was a total sort of a, a storm in a teacup. And I think there's this great moment where Claire Foy, who I think gets kind of a deal in this film, um, she's talking to Kyle Chandler, who plays the kind of like a 
mission control guy and um, she says you're just a bunch of boys playing at like you don't know anything kind of moment and it's her one like you know she really gets to uh, explode as she's quite good at doing and um, maybe it is a political issue in that it's kind of talking about the hubris of the American government particularly during the 60s but I think it also speaks to the Russian government and the fact that the space race was kind of just like a a mass dick waving across the Atlantic and um, that I guess is political but yeah I don't think it's really um, overtly a political film at all I think it's really and that that for me I think is maybe the problem I had with it is it's it's very reluctant to take a lane and um, it doesn't for me watching it I was just frustrated I was like this god the the amount of um, sacrifice that went into this just to you know go go to space and maybe maybe that makes me unpatriotic I'm watching a movie about the the moon landings and going oh this was like a big waste of money (laughs) wow (laughs) but the the reason I ask is because in the middle of the film there is this um John Scott Heron yeah I couldn't couldn't say if it was archive footage or something that he'd shot but it was it sort of sits (laughs) smack dab right in the middle of the film and it feels like this is the point where we're going to sort of broaden out and we're going to talk about America and what the process of traveling to space actually means for a country and what people actually think about it but then it sort of draws a line and says right we've we've done that now let's Let's do the fun bit and go to the moon. Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same way as you do. I kind of thought I, when that scene came, I thought, oh, at last there's going to be you know something beyond this little cocoon that the main character lives in that will be introduced to the film. But in fact, it just never goes anywhere. <laughs> and in fact, the space mission, it's not just that the space mission is sort of the culmination of the, the space race between the two superpowers of the world. It feels like the space mission, the entire purpose of it, as far as the film is concerned, is to allow this <laughs> private individual his little moment of release. It's such a weird ending. But I didn't really feel that the film was interested in politics. They were always at the margin of it. All right, should we get some scores for this one? Uh, Hannah, do you want to go first this time? Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe a four in anticipation. I, I'm a big uh, booster of uh, Whiplash. I really liked it. La La Land, I, I enjoyed, but, you know, it's a bit like Candy Floss. You know, you don't really want to go again after you've had it the first time. So, yeah, like a four in anticipation and then like a three. I can appreciate the film on a effort level obviously a lot of time and money has gone into it but um it didn't really work for me I was left quite cold by it and then retrospect yeah like I don't, I don't want to give it a two because that seems petty but it is a two for me like I have no desire to watch this again Anton and I think um, in anticipation, I was like just like Hannah. I'm, I'm kind of I loved Whiplash. I didn't really like La La Land, so I'd say a three. For enjoyment, I'd probably say a two because, frankly, I was bored. But in retrospect, I actually it perked up a little bit for me because <laughs> I'm, I did find sort of thinking through its themes and the weird route it takes through what really was quite a monumental program. The way it individualizes it, I think, was something I liked more. So maybe maybe a ooh, three or a four. <laughs> I'm going to say a four. Okay. Thanks, guys. Um, so that's uh, uh, First Man, Damien Chazelle, Ryan Gosling, Claire Foy, out in cinemas this Friday and probably coming to an Oscar season near you. <laughs> so without further ado, let's move on to this week's film club. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We've got a letter this week. David in California. That's where he is. That's not his name. Um, Hey, guys. You talked about black superhero movies on this week's film club. It took me back to my first black superhero movie, The Meteor Man, brackets, 1993. It's probably an absurd of a watch as Spawn, but a ton of black talent from the era made appearances. Plus, who doesn't want to watch a school teacher battle a gang of bleach blonde drug dealing gangsters? Anyway, I thought it could be a future film club or a lazy Sunday, and I doubt this movie ever made its way to the UK. Keep up the good work. Meteor Man, any of you partaken? I have not seen it. <laughs> I, I can't say I'm familiar, no. This was the year after I was born, though, so, uh, you know. That's the good get-out clause. <laughs> I was one. It's a film that I remember, I've never seen, but it's one of those <laughs> that I remember on the video shop shelves consistently. So it did make its way to the UK. It, I think it was a, it was a straight-to-VHS, because it it's more of a comedy than a superhero film. The guy on the cover is wearing a sort of ill-fitting... Oh, actually, I can't remember if it's ill-fitting, but it's sort of a, a, a meteor-based le- uh, leotard, um, powder blue. But no, it's definitely one that I want to sort of take a look at. In fact, a colleague and friend, Ash Clark, who now is the programmer for um, BAM Cinematheque in New York, did an entire season on black superhero films. So maybe one day, hopefully, by the time Black Panther 2 come, inevitably comes around, he can bring it back home. <laughs> um, so let's get on to this week's actual film club, which is the right stuff. Here's a clip. On October 14th, 1947, Captain Charles Yeager shattered the sound barrier. Propelled man into the future. And the search began for a new breed of men. Men who were fearless. You've heard about our project. Sounds dangerous. It's very dangerous. Count me in. So that's uh, from Philip Kaufman's 1983 film, The Right Stuff, which we're taking another look at this week in tandem with the release of Damien Chazelle's First Man. This film is based on the 1979 book by new journalism Diane Tom Wolfe. It's about the space race, uh, this time men orbiting the Earth. But also it's about the history of modern aviation and the men who risk life and limb to attain these these crazy new speeds. In the clip there you heard about Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier. Amazing performance in the film by Sam Shepard. So when the film originally came out, it was something of a flop. It hmm. didn't make much of a connection with an audience. And I mean... But it's since grown in stature. It's a it's a kind of critical favourite. A lot of American critics put it on their kind of bests of the decade in the 1980s. Is it understandable that maybe it's not a film that's going to be like a big box office weekend draw? Yeah, I think um, I can imagine this was a bit of a hard sell for audiences. So it came along in the production schedule just after Heaven's Gate came out, which was a um, you know widely derided as a. Uh, self-indulgent mess but has undergone a sort of re-evaluation now uh, where people are like actually it's really good and yes it should be three hours long which is what people say about the right stuff but at the time the production company were like no we're not we're not doing this again we're not having another uh, fiasco on our hands so they had to get another financer in to back it and um, I'm glad they did that I think it's definitely a better film about the space race than uh, First Man is. Anton when did you first see it? Oh gosh, I saw it decades ago, but I can't I can't remember exactly <laughs> what that was. I love the film. I, mean, I was actually really glad to have an opportunity to rewatch it because I did enjoy it the first time and was wondering whether I still would and um, wondering how it would hold up in comparison to something like First Man. And I, I agree with Hannah completely that it's, it's, I think it's a much better film. It's strange because although it's again about something like the space race, um, it's about it begins with the sound barrier being broken by Chuck Yeager and then um, moves on to you know the first space program and attempts to get out of the atmosphere. And you'd expect from that precy something like this story of American triumphalism. And, I mean, in a sense, it does deliver that, but it's always offset by this notion of death and 
failure and of the best being left behind. And, I mean, I mentioned Begins with Chuck Yeager. Um, in fact, the script was originally supposed to be written by him, and it was written by William Goldman, and then William Goldman left the project because the director, Philip Kaufman, insisted that Chuck Yeager be included and, in fact, be the main part of the story, and Chuck Yeager wasn't in William, William Goldman's script. William Goldman <laughs> wrote a much more patriotic script. And Chuck Yeager broke the speed barrier just after the Second World War, and was excluded from the space program because he hadn't had a college education and just wasn't the kind of sexy new look that America he wanted for its public right image. Stuff. But actually, the way in which he is characterised is as this kind of uh, figure of masculinity from America's mythic past. He's almost the Marlboro man. He rides <laughs> in to the airport on a horse smoking a cigarette. He's extremely laconic. And he doesn't talk about what he's going to do. He just does it. Apparently that's a slightly falsified account oh, uh, of, of the reality absolutely. of him just like literally walking onto a, a landing strip, jumping in at the nearest fighter jet and, be, and them going, oh, it's Chuck, yeah, Go for, go for broke. <laughs> yeah, no, the flights, in reality, the flights he took were very, very carefully planned. But in the film, it's presented as he just jumps on board and doesn't get permission and um, just does whatever he wants and you know breaks the, the latest <laughs> record that someone else has broken because he's always going to be ahead of everybody else. But the point is that he's left behind and you're introduced to a team of sort of younger, newer pilots who never really, perhaps with the exception of Ed Harris's John Glenn, they never really match up to his stature. They're all in one way or another very flawed individuals, whereas he's just a straightforward hero. And so although you're watching uh, takeoff and liftoff, you're also watching decline. And I think that's an, an, an interesting and kind of complex story of, of America and American history. In fact, it's also looking at masculinity specifically in very unusual ways. The achievements or the failures of the different pilots um, are often sexualised or at least metaphorically sexualised. Gus Grissom, who is the, the, the second astronaut to actually go into the beyond the Earth's atmosphere, uh, played by Fred Ward, when he lands back in the water at the end of his mission, he, according to the film, this supposedly isn't true, but according to the film, he panics and he opens the hatch of the landing craft before he should have. And as a result, the landing craft sinks in the water and he, he's only just rescued. And it's all a bit of an embarrassing <laughs> fail, like everything just goes wrong. And he says, I didn't do anything. I was just lying there. It just blew. Must have been a technical malfunction. The hatch just blew. And he says this to his wife as well. And it's so obviously, it's as though he's talking about premature ejaculation, except that instead he's talking about the space mission. And this idea that his failure as a pilot is actually his emasculation and he's sidelined from then on in the film. He's this kind of embarrassing figure that nobody wants to be seen near. And the first trip beyond the atmosphere is Alan Shepard, played by Scott Glenn. And the focus of, of that scene is actually, it's not his struggles to survive the intense pressures of flying up and beyond the atmosphere under all that heat. The focus is on his desperation to, to pee and his inability to control <laughs> his bladder, um, which again is a very, it's a very emasculating way to present this, I think. I mean, that's interesting you say that because I, cause I think rewatching it, I'd seen it many years ago myself and giving it a rewatch this week, I was struck by, and I think this is maybe something that's missing in action in First Man very much, is, is this kind of undertow of, of humour. And uh, some of the humour is actually quite broad sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a... <laughs> I was thinking about Jeff Goldblum and Harry Shearer in this movie who who kind of um, crop up as two NASA recruiters and have this like great double act only for like maybe 10 minutes out of this three hour epic. There's a running joke of, of Goldblum running to the president to tell him the latest <laughs> news from Russia and they're like, yeah, we already know. <laughs> but yeah, it was, I was pleasantly surprised. I think... Um, it's you know it's a very long film and the thing that makes you invested is that it's not all kind of like serious space it's you know there are funny things there are funny moments the, the characters themselves are interesting and dynamic and i think it helps that they're played by actors who have that some that charisma about them i mean ed harris kind of for me it was interesting to see him kind of when he was young because now i i mainly know him from the roles he's done in recently you know like in mother and in uh Westworld, where he's playing kind of like quite creepy characters, and in this, he's very, you know, very, uh, very avuncular, very charming. And um, the other thing that I think it has over First Man is that the female characters get more of a um, more more to do in this. You kind of there's this whole scene which they had a very similar scene in uh, First Man, where one of the wives' um, husbands has died during a mission, and they kind of go over and like talk to him, like, "Are you okay?" 
but it feels so much more sincere in the right stuff and so much more kind of um you feel that loss more you feel that it's uh you get to see them having a conversation about what it's like to be married to these um men children who kind of uh don't want to talk about their feelings and just want to go and uh, fly into space. And the the one thing that really surprised me about this is how much it hates Lyndon B. Johnson. Like, there's a scene late, late in the film where they're waiting to go on the mission and Lyndon B. Johnson's, like, there in the car outside the wife's house and he's like, oh, I hope he dies because it would be really good if I can go in and comfort her. And it's like, I'm sure that um, Lyndon would not have been okay with this. Like, he's really portrayed as a bit of a, um, a, a sleazeball. I mean, I think one of the things I, I, I loved about revisiting this again was this this idea of the, these men who maybe they're not thinking constantly about the fact that they're on the precipice of death, especially someone like Dennis Quaid's character, who is almost like a kind of jock. He's all about having fun. You know, he has this kind of urge to be a pilot, to go to space, to break these these records, I guess. And there's a kind of tragic hue to the whole thing of just these kind of very... They feel like very normal people in the film. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And that's what's kind of nice about it. It still feels quite unique. You know, its structure is very loose. It's a saga. It's got. A, it's almost got a literary feel to it. But it's obvious that there are modern directors who are obviously fans of the film. Uh, uh, do you see the right stuff in many sort of contemporary works, maybe? I think you see it in First Man. I think it's quite oh, clear yeah. that he's studied the right stuff, even though he often deliberately deviates from the kind of template that it offers. But they look like very obvious <laughs> deviations, like he's making an effort to... I, I also thought that Christopher Nugland has obviously studied this frame by yeah. frame. I mean, Interstellar is almost like... Although it's a very grounded film in many ways, in a sort of human way, it does have these kind of quite weird, almost sort of surreal... You know, when they're looking out the window into space, it's almost kind of psychedelic. It's not. It's not. You're kind of. We're trying to give you a kind of honest depiction of what it would feel like. There is a sort of like, let's go inside inside your head and use some psychedelics here. <laughs> and we should say the film came out in 1983, which is the same year in which Mandy is set, and is also the first year in which Nicolas Cage had a starring role in Valley Girl. Uh, <laughs> wow. On that note... <laughs> I, I have one more point, talking about this film's influence in the yeah, rest yeah, yeah, of culture, yeah. and this is something I realised watching the film. I'd never seen it before. I watched it the first time last night. And there's a scene, which I guess is iconic, I didn't know this, where they're walking, all the pilots are walking down the hallway in slow-mo in their astronaut gear. And this scene has... There's like the, uh, an homage to this in Monsters, Inc. And I never <laughs> realised that's what it was riffing on. But there we go. One of, my, one of my great pleasures is actually watching films and then belatedly understanding <laughs> Simpsons jokes. I mean, there's pretty much like one a month. I mean, if you watch, if you watch the uh, Homer Goes to Space episode of um, The Simpsons, I'm sure, you know, there are the right stuff jokes in there. Absolutely. Like. Moving on for a final little, uh, little bit, we're going to talk about the London Film Festival, which is actually starting... By the time you hear this podcast, <laughs> it will be happening. It's a, a massive two-week festival with lots and lots of new films, lots of undiscovered gems, treasures from the archive, events, talks, everything, all happening in London. Some happening not in London. There's the premiere of Peterloo that's happening in Manchester. Obviously, it's a massive programme. So what I'm going to do, ask you guys, is if you had one golden ticket to see one movie that you could give to your bezzy mate in the world who's not seen any movies. And just to add, that bezzy mate has exactly the same film taste as you. They're a clone of you, in fact. <laughs> well, I'm always drawn to Michael Blythe's cult strand because of my own interests. And um, there's a film playing in that strand. It's a very strong strand this year. You could see almost anything from it. But um, there's a film by a director, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, called Quarks, which is Q-U-A-R-X. Right. And it's called All the Gods in the Sky... It looks a little bit like a Jeunet a Caro film. Its aesthetic is like that, but it's very dark and very messed up about two siblings, a brother and a sister, who are locked into a very toxic relationship with one another that began with an, a horrific accident in their childhood and has seeped into their present. And they're both seeking a kind of higher authority to settle the difference between them. They're both seeking a very different kind of higher authority from one another, right. I might add, which is why it's all the gods rather than God in the sky. <laughs> and it's 
funny and beautiful and really shocking. I mean, this is a film that there's a few scenes in it that genuinely shocked me, which does not happen very often. Right, if it shocks Anton Battelle, then you, I, yeah. you, you've got a problem there. <laughs> so that's all the gods in the sky. Hannah, what have you got for us? Well, I feel like I've talked a lot about all the great films I saw at TIFF and lots of the great films I saw at TIFF are at London. But I'm going to talk about a film called uh, Thunder Road, which I saw yesterday, which is a smaller film Written, directed, produced and starring uh, this actor called Jim Cummings. It's based on his short film, which won uh, the Sundance uh, Grand Jury Short Film Prize in 2016. That's a red light for me. Well, I don't care about your opinions. It's for a clone of me, David. Of course. It's not for a clone of David. Um, Fair enough. It's about a small town cop who his mother's just died and he's kind of coming to terms with that, whilst also locked in this very bitter battle for custody of his daughter that all sounds very heavy and it is a very sad film at moments but it's also very very funny and it touches a lot on kind of grief fatherhood but for me specifically the thing that I really liked about it is how much it deals with uh, masculinity and the pressure on particularly men in kind of small town America to be very stoic and not in touch with their emotions and very like manly and I think it's it's just a really lovely very uh beautiful film that I would recommend people seek out cool well I'm going to say I haven't seen the film but I'm really excited <laughs> to see a film called Maya by a director called Mia Henson Love who has made some of my favourite films of recent times she made a film called Eden and she did a film uh, a couple of years ago called Things to Come with Isabel Huppert and this is her new movie and I and I have a bit of a kind of personal tradition of watching her movies at the London Film Festival every year so I'm glad that this one was programmed and I'm really excited to see it so Maybe I can let you know about how that went in the future, but I'm sure it'll be great because she's one of those directors who I can't really see bad things in. So quick note on next week, um, we're going to be looking at the new Halloween plus can competition entry Dogman from Matteo Garoni. Our film club, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to throw it out to you, the public, in that we're going to be talking about one of the Halloween films. But here's the thing. We're asking you, what's the best Halloween film that's not the new Halloween and that's not the original Halloween. So <laughs> within that kind of middle sandwich of Halloween films, Anton, you, you want to sort of tip the scales anyway here? Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Right, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a feeling it might go that way. I've already heard a few people say that so far. I've seen so. some people saying Rob Zombie's Halloween and I I think I'm doing no, that. No, they're saying Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. <laughs> So, even, even worse. Even worse. So. <laughs> so, yeah, tune in next week to find out which one we go for. So, uh, But we'll let you know in advance. So, yeah, thanks to Hannah. Thanks Thank to you. Anton. Thanks Thank for, you. your, for your maiden voyage. We'll be back next week. And this has been a Seven Digital production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.